Your brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back into our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now here is the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome everybody. All right, today we're talking about depression and anxiety, two faces of the same coin. Oh. Over the past couple of years, there's been a lot of clinicians and research that's been moving forward to the conclusion that depression and anxiety are not two disorders that are uh, that coexist, but they're two faces of one disorder. You know, um, so you might be anxious and you're anxious, and so you become depressed because you're anxious and you feel out of control, or you could be depressed and you're anxious because you can't get your butt out of bed. So that could be that could be an issue. So, you know, here in in the mental health world where exact diagnosis uh, dictates how you're treated, be it anxiety, depression, they're regarded as two distinct disorders, mostly in the psychological world. But in the world of real people, many suffer from both conditions. In fact, both mood disorders present as a combination of anxiety and depression. And there are surveys that show 60 to 70% of those with depression also have anxiety. And half of those with chronic anxiety also have clinically significant symptoms of depression. So the coexistence, if you look at it, the coexistence of both depression and anxiety, and this is a term that we call in the psychology world of comorbidity, and, and it carries some serious repercussions because it makes the course of the disorder more chronic and it impairs functioning, especially like at work or in relationships, and, and it substantially raises the suicide risk. And so just once I said uh, before, over the past couple of years, uh, we've been moving towards a new conclusion. And so looking at them as if they coexist, that they're faces of one disorder. The genetics seem to be the same. The neurobiology seems to overlap that. And uh, this is according to Boston University, uh, Dr. David Barlow. And, and the psychological and biological nature, and this is a quote, the psychological and biological nature of the vulnerability are the same. And it seems that some people with the vulnerability react with anxiety to life stressors. And some, in addition, go beyond that to become depressed. And so they close down. And, and so basically depression is like a shutdown and anxiety is kind of looking at the future, seeing dangerous things that might happen in the next hour, day, weeks, months, whatever. And depression is all uh, that with the addition of I really don't think I'm going to be able to cope with this. Maybe I'll just give up. And, you know, and it's a shutdown and it's marked with mental thought process and behavioral slowing. So at the core of the double disorder is some shared mechanism that's it's really not working right. And this research points to overactivity of the stress response system. And that seems to overdrive people's emotional center in their brain. And, and that includes the fear center, which is right on top of the, 
you know, in the amygdala, it's, it's right on top of your brainstem. And so negative stimulus make a, a really strong impact and hijack the response to our systems. And so if that's what we continue to do over and over, we have the philosophy of a defeatist uh, negative outcome, fear of negative outcomes. We're building that reptilian brain to the point where it is the, the the blood flow in our brain is going more there than it is in anywhere else in our brain. So we're not really thinking. We're just a creature walking around reacting to life and feeling and as if um, we're like a ping pong ball. I mean, we don't seem to have control, which is what everyone desires to have is the control. And that is the square root of all psychosis. In the in every single non-biological disorder that is in the, the the diagnostic manual for mental health number five, every single one of those diagnoses, and I'm not talking about schizophrenia or mental retardation or borderline intelligence, anything like that, but those basic disorders like depression, anxiety, the symptoms are the need to control things we cannot control. And that's how we manifest the disorder. And so, you know, a lot of people have really tough time distinguishing anxiety from depression. And, and, uh, you know, the treatments that work best for depression also combat anxiety. So, you know, know, the cognitive behavioral therapy, which is your thought-based therapy, combined with some behavioral uh, aspects, gets a response pattern central to both conditions. And so you can treat uh, depression and anxiety all at the same time if you look at it as they're both playing on each other. And so it's really important to look at this view of anxiety and depression as you know two distinct disorders with multiple flavors of anxiety is a wrong class as you know it's a wrong clarification it's a wrong place to put this and and so it's led the the uh, pharmaceutical industry down a blind alley going for anxiety and depression separately rather than together. And so the medications that we have to take have to be multiple due to the fact that the industry is built on two separate disorders rather than one disorder with two different aspects to it. You know, so who's at risk for for combined anxiety and depression? There's definitely a a family component. You know, looking what uh, disorders populate the family history of a person who presents with either anxiety or depression provides a really good clue as to whether they'll end up with both. And so the nature of, of the anxiety disorder also has influence on obsessive compulsive disorder, panic disorder, social phobia, and we'll talk about those later, depression, Um So age plays a role, too. You know, a person who develops an anxiety disorder for the first time after 40 is likely to also have depression. And someone who develops panic attacks for the first time at age 50 often has a history of depression or is experiencing depression at the same time. You know, so so uh, usually anxiety precedes depression, typically by several years. But currently, the average age of onset with an anxiety disorder is late childhood, early adolescence. And that presents a gigantic uh, chance or opportunity for the prevention of depression. As the average of the the first onset is now in the mid-20s, To prevent subsequent development of depression, you treat the anxiety earlier, and hopefully you'll knock out the depression later in life. 
um, you know, also the brain goes to where its patterns are. If, if it's done something before, like, okay, when I get depressed, I just lay down and sleep for three days or whatever. Or if I'm anxious, then I have to uh, run or do something crazy, or I'm really irritable and angry at people, and that's a strong sign. Well, the the deal is that's what your brain's always going to go to and reinforce when you're in those pockets. And so what you want to do is fight those pockets so your brain doesn't get used to that muscle memory of going back to those certain places. But there's, there's a, a link between social phobia and depression, and it's dramatic. It often affects people who can't get out, can't date, don't have friends, and they're very isolated, alone, and they feel cut off. And and sometimes anxiety is is out of proportion, and sometimes it's transmitted to children by parental over-concern. And so the largest group of depression anxiety sufferers is baby boomers, and the fastest-growing group is their children. They can't teach kids what they don't know. So plus, plus their desire to raise perfect children puts a whole lot of pressure on the kids and they're, and they're creating a, basically a bunch of anxious, depressed children. And so, you know, treatment seldom hinges on what disorder came first. In many cases, the depression in, exists because the anxiety is so draining. So once you treat the anxiety, the depression might lift. Now, in practice, Treatment is, 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 is targeted at depression and anxiety simultaneously. So there's an increased interest in treating both disorders at the same time, and that's what we're hoping to see in this new generation of psychology, is where those two disorders are placed together and treated simultaneously, hopefully from both a medical standpoint and a therapeutic standpoint. You know, there, there's a lot of uh, depression and, and, and anxiety have, have a lot of different conditions, but they also have similar treatments. You know, if you're feeling down or if, or if you're sad, it, then it's normal and everyone feels anxious from time to time. It's, it's a normal response to stressful situations, but severe and ongoing feelings of depression and anxiety can be a sign that there is a mental disorder going on. And so anxiety may occur as a, as a clinical symptom like major depression. It's also common to have depression that's triggered by anxiety. Um, a generalized anxiety disorder is a good example. We'll define that in a little bit. Panic disorders, separation anxiety. You know, a lot of people have a diagnosis of both anxiety disorder and clinical depression. So those conditions usually improve with counseling, medications, um, such as antidepressants or both. And then also, you can incorporate lifestyle changes such as improving your sleep, uh, increasing social support, using stress reduction techniques, or getting regular exercise. And if, if you have either condition, avoid alcohol, smoking, and recreational drugs. Duh. And, and, you know, they can make both conditions worse and interfere with your treatment, especially if it's involving medication. Now, clinical depression has been linked to a lot of other mental illnesses, such as anxiety, but also to panic, to social phobia, generalized anxiety. So these conditions affect millions and millions and millions of people. Fortunately, they're treatable. So let's break down anxiety. We're talking about all these terms. I'm throwing all these terms out here. Let's try to get it down to what they, what they mean. Anxiety is a, is a, 
a normal reaction to stress, but when it takes on life of its own and becomes unhealthy, and it means it's taking over your life. That means you're living in fear, continuously feeling vulnerable. And, and it's a, a big reaction, and it's generalized on, uh, <clears throat> in all aspects of your life, in the body, in your mind. And, and those symptoms usually include like a rapid heartbeat, aches and pains, muscle tension. And, and the National Institute of Mental Health uh, did a survey, and more than 18% of adults in the United States suffer from an anxiety di- disorder in any given year. And we're just talking about the United States. And anxiety disorders are prevalent in 25% of children ages 13 to 18. So like depression, anxiety is thought to come from a combination of genetic and environmental factors. Now, depression as it manifests in children is irritability. It's not sadness. Yes, they do the sadness thing, but that's more often seen later. It's usually the irritability and the anger and the lack of concentration that you're going to see in kids when it comes to depression. Now, when you look at an anxiety disorder, it's not always present in depressive disorders, but most of the time it's underneath. And and the true depression differs from an anxiety disorder in that, you know, an anxiety disorder can include uh, generalized anxiety disorder called GAD panic. And also some specific phobias, oftentimes such as anti-social uh, anxiety disorder. And so there's uh, obsessive compulsive disorder where people develop all these rituals to fill up their day and they're basically coping with life instead of living it. And even post-traumatic stress disorder has, has been uh, uh, conditioned as an anxiety disorder. And, and so anxiety disorders, if you look at it, They usually hit women twice as frequently as they do men. And a lot of studies show that people with depression often experience symptoms of an anxiety disorder. And so an anxiety disorder that's left untreated can really honestly cause unnecessary suffering and and a lot of impairment for both the person who has it and the person's family. And, And so let's look at this thing, this GAD thing, this generalized anxiety. Well, people with Generalized anxiety are filled with exaggerated worry and tension, even though there's usually nothing beyond the ordinary concerns to worry about. These individuals anticipate disaster, ruminate about their health, their finances, their work, their relationships, their family problems. They have difficulties concentrating. They have fatigue, irritability, muscle tension, restlessness, and sleep disturbance. And this cannot be related to substance abuse or a medical condition. Now, if you look at a panic disorder, and I'm trying to link all these terms because the depression and anxiety come together, but anxiety folds out into a whole lot of different features of how it displays itself. So a panic disorder is is another generalized uh, anxiety uh, disorder that often coexists with depression, but it affects about 6 million Americans and just Americans, mostly young adults. And uh, it's, it's usually overwhelming fear and terror. And that these people have chest pains. They have choking, difficulty breathing, dizziness, uh, a lot of gastrointestinal uh, bad stuff, you know, headaches, shortness of breath, sweaty palms, uh, rapid heartbeat, trembling. 
And so they, they, you know, they feel like they're going to have a heart attack or they feel like they're going to die or go crazy. And so when someone's diagnosed with a panic attack, at least uh, four of the following symptoms have to be present. That, that, that there's chest pain, there's choking, there's dizziness, there's extreme sweating, fast heartbeat, fear of dying, feeling losing control, feelings of unreality or being detached from yourself, hot flashes or chills nausea, numbness, shakiness, shortness of breath. These symptoms are often accompanied by worry over implications of the attack, the panic attack, like fear and death from a heart attack. And so these people, they feel like they're, they're, they're being attacked by a ghost. It, it just comes out of nowhere and it just knocks them down. And then they feel like they're vulnerable everywhere they go to the panic attacks to take place. So they feel like they've lost control of their life. Then they start to pare down what they do in life, pare back, and not display themselves and make themselves public and don't put themselves out there. They don't take leaps of faith to try to help their life because they're all caught up in this panic attack idea that it's just going to come and it's going to take them away again. And then there's these phobias. And that's a pretty common type of anxiety disorder. And usually they're pretty unreasonable. And they're usually really unrational, uh, irrational, of something that poses little or no real danger. But, a, you know, a, a fear can be of a situation, of an object, of an event. So people with phobias can't avoid what they fear. And it, it usually results itself in a lot of anxiety. And this usually is rapid heartbeat, nausea, sweating. And so phobias are, are common and strike about 10, uh, a one out of 10 Americans, about a tenth of our population, and women twice as likely to have a phobia. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to define a couple of more terms, but then we're going to jump on into how do you work with people with this thing and how do you resolve it? Come back. <laughs> Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Listen for Transformation for Success with Dr. Barbara Young. Her show topics cover creating lasting transformation in challenging environments and how creating change can have an impact on the success of individuals from a mind, body, and spirit perspective. It's going to be inspiring and uplifting each week. So tune in on Tuesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and also listen on the Voice America Business and Influencers Channels. Transformation takes one step at a time. It's time. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, 
please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about depression and anxiety, two faces of the same coin. And this is, once again, this is a different way than the DSM-4 or 5 and, and the psychological world have traditionally looked at depression and anxiety, especially the medical community from a sense of medicine uh, they've always looked at them as two separate disorders. However, a lot of our research, and once again, I'm bringing this up from the first segment, but a lot of the research is showing these guys play together. And medication actually should be and needs to be developed that treats both of these disorders as if they're a part of one another. And oftentimes when you treat depression, you fix anxiety. And oftentimes when you tr- fix anxiety, you treat the depression um, and that happens in the in the uh, psychological setting or a therapy setting. But I'm breaking out terms because anxiety has so many different folds to it. And so I'm trying to break about so you kind of understand what each looks like. And if you do that, then you're able to to relate that to your own life or to to someone else in your life and then go, ah, new angle on this. All right, so what is a social anxiety disorder? It's a social phobia is another term. You know, it's, it's a condition that causes a whole lot of fear of situations that require interacting with some other people, uh, performing in, in front of other people. It's unlike being shy or nervous before a performance. Social anxiety is a fear that you might humiliate yourself with your actions in speech or in public. And, and it's pretty common. It affects more than 15 million people just in the United States at any given year, and it often begins in childhood and rarely develops after age 25. But people with social phobia uh, are often aware that their fears are irrational, but they're unable to ease or erase their fears. And, And so they oftentimes have a lot of difficulty talking, they have dry mouth, they have a lot of sweating, a lot of nausea, a lot of racing hearts, trembling, shaking, And like other anxiety uh, disorders, symptoms can be really tolerable or they can be so severe that they become socially debilitating. They just freeze. And, and, you know, depression also can coexist with schizophrenia. And this is a psychotic illness that is usually marked by the inability to distinguish the real form uh, from the imaginary and they're confused and they have jumbled thoughts, they have hallucinations, they have feelings of emptiness, sadness, and those all become a part of the disorder. But schizophrenia and depression are different on a a neurobiological level because about half people with schizophrenia may develop a major depressive episode at some point in their life, and that can trigger them into a further psychotic uh, state. But depression is not considered really enduring or hallmark feature of schizophrenia, but it, it seems to be a major symptom. And so you may want to consider, you know, schizoaffective disorder as another possibility when you're looking at the possibility of that. And that, that's a personality type 
Um, it, or it's a, it's a schizoaffectives tend to be people that wear sunglasses inside buildings and don't like people. They're kind of gothic in their way. Um, they don't like to talk to people. Um, they have a lot of uh, difficulty, you know, standing in line. They're rather impatient and they tend to isolate themselves. You know, there is also a very strong link between depression and eating disorders. And eating disorders really often occur with depression and anxiety. And so, it, 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 now eating disorders, they have a lot of extremes. They occur when someone severely reduces their food intake or overeats to the extreme. And so, you know, sometimes they, they often treat this with antidepressants and other things. And you cannot, as a therapist, you can't even see person with the eating disorder without having consultation on a continuous basis where you're co-treating with a, a medical doctor. And two of the most common types of uh, disorders, eating disorders, anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. And, and so these eating disorders are usually among teenage girls and women, but they often get worse the longer they go untreated. The lack of nutrition that's associated with the eating disorders is what really harms the body's organs and, and, and leads to death. Um, people with anorexia purposefully starve themselves despite being hungry. And they tend to excel in sports and school and work seeking perfection. Uh, you know, some people with this anorexia stop eating in order to gain a feeling of control over their lives. Others may do so to basically rebel against their parents or, or other people that they love. So the diagnosis of anorexia nervosa really requires that a person weigh at least 15% less than their ideal body weight. And it's estimated that about 3.7% of females will suffer from anorexia at some point in their life. And it's primarily a food restriction disorder. However, it's not uncommon for people with anorexia to purge or empty themselves through vomiting and, and abuse of laxatives and enemas and diuretics and you know, people with bulimia, bulimia nervosa eat a whole bunch of food all at once, and then they vomit. And the, <laughs> this is something my dog does, by the way. <laughs> I'm sorry. But the vomiting may occur multiple times during the day. The vomiting is basically triggered by the fear of weight gain or stomach discomfort. But people with bulimia, they, they often use laxatives and, and, and vigorous exercise to purge themselves. You know, but if, if you're going to call a person uh, bulimic, the behavior has to occur at least twice a week uh, for three months. Although people with bulimia usually are underweight, they may also have normal body weight. And it's estimated that bulimia will affect about 4.2% of females at some point in their life. You know, it, it's just amazing all these links that uh, follow. And by the way, we're not even talking about substance abuse disorders. They also are linked to depression. Um, you know, most people uh, have grief. They have loss of a job. God only knows a lot of us have that experience these days. Uh, divorce, illness, and a whole lot of other stressors that can lead to feelings of sadness, worry, frustration, loneliness, you know, the, these are normal reactions to difficult situations. But, you know, the people that, ex that experience these feelings daily, 
without a stressor, this can interfere with their ability to carry out everyday activities, such as getting to work on time or proper care of yourself or caring for children. But in, in this case, people might be suffering from depression, anxiety, and both. And so d- depression and anxiety do co-occur. And uh, probably about 10 to 20% of adults uh, in a 12-month period will visit their fi- uh, primary care physician for a depressive or an anxiety disorder episode. And nearly 50% of them will suffer from an, a, a secondary uh you know, anxiety or depression or both or some other thing like OCD, they'll have a secondary way to to experience another anxiety, another disorder that goes along with it. Comorbidity is the term. So, you know, you got to look at, at all of the essential features of these disorders as we've just broke them down and try to get a good understanding of how to identify them and then how to face them. You know, If you look at depression, depression is a very interesting thing. Depression is basically you have tons and tons of unmet expectations. And those expectations are riddled with emotion. They're riddled with a sense of needing to control something you cannot control. And so those people who don't meet our expectations, we often have a lot of anger and rage towards. And then we may not express it all the time, but the bottom line is it has a deep emotional sense of betrayal attached to it. And we harbor that forever and ever and look for themes that reinforce that depression. And so what you have to do, if you're going to convert yourself from depression, you have to move it to a preference. All of the things you expect that are unreasonable, that are ridiculous, out of proportion, you change them. You change them to a preference. I prefer. You know, I prefer my kid did their homework. I'd prefer that we were all back to work and living a normal life. I'd prefer we were better off financially. I'd prefer had a new car. I prefer all kinds of whatever, whatever it is. So if we don't expect ourselves to have something, but we prefer it, there is no emotion attached to it. And the beauty of a preference is you can communicate it all day long and never offend anybody because you're just putting out there what you would like, what you are wishing for, rather than forcing it down other people's throats. Now, let's look at anxiety. Anxiety is very interesting because all it really is is living in fear. And if you're a faith-based person, living in fear is is not a place where you need to reside um, because life is a leap of faith. So when faith enters... Fear leaves. And when fear enters, and I'm not talking about religion, but yes, religion is included in that aspect if you are a a faith-based person. But when fear enters, faith leaves. And so it's a simple thing. If you're going to focus your brain on fear, you're going to have fear. And and you're going to have fear-based outcomes. And that means you're going to prune back a lot of the things you normally would enjoy And now you're just coping with life because you feel so vulnerable. And so uh, anxiety also plays on that sense of vulnerability, that you are weak, um, that you can be exposed, that other people will see a softer side of you or, or, or a different side of you. And so what basically happens is we put on a mask to cover our anxiety 
and act like we're okay when deep down inside we're deeply afraid and and deeply scared. Now, people that live a faith-based life have faith that they can't control the outcomes, but they can contribute to getting a better outcome by hedging their bets and trying to do good things in their life and planting a lot of seeds and, and, and praying for good opportunity or hoping for good opportunity to come along. You know, the thing is, we don't have all the answers, but we can take opportunities as they come and take full advantage of them. When people are depressed and they're anxious, they don't take leap of, leaps of faith. And a leap of faith is something simple, like having a baby, uh, like, uh, you know, getting a new job, uh, marrying someone, uh, starting a new relationship. Um, you know, it it could be simple as uh, buying something new for yourself that you'd never bought before. It could be all kinds of things where we don't know what it's going to look like on the backside, but we're going to enjoy the process that it's offering us. And that is the point of life. Life is a process. It's not an outcome. It's lots of little outcomes that are follow a long sense of process. And if you start staring at your life in this moment, and think that you have all the answers of what it's going to look like down the road, you're gravely mistaken. And so the problem with depression is we get too far ahead of ourselves. The problem with anxiety is we get way too far ahead of ourselves. We live in fear. We predict negative outcomes, and then we get them. You know, if people that talk about divorce get divorced, and, and that's because they're planting the seed, and they're, they're basically saying, hey, you know, this could happen, and that doesn't do anybody any good in a relationship, but that is depression. That is creating an anxiety that we're no longer stable. And so it's really important that people that can't get through their problems, people that are afraid of conflict, often have depression and anxiety. And and surprising how many people really will avoid conflict at all costs. And the very interesting thing about conflict and, and once again, this plays a big role in how depression and anxiety operate. Conflict is best done calm and flat. Okay, that means we focus on our words and we don't focus on inflection. We don't, infor- we don't focus on our tone. We don't focus on our verbosity of our body language or our physique, whatever it is. We don't use any of that. We just use our words and we speak to our emotions. And if you can do that like an adult, you know, I'm very frustrated. You told me you were going to do this and it didn't happen. I'm very sad. I'm disappointed. I want to trust you, but I'm beginning not to trust you because this is happening. Okay, that's using your words. That's adult conflict. If you work in a decent job, you're going to use that as your way to communicate in that job. Why can't we do that in our home life? If you did more of that conflict in your personal life, adult conflict, which is non-threatening, then you would be able to resolve a lot of these problems that you have worried over and have anxiety over and have depression over because you don't try to participate in the conversation. And so it's, it's incredible that people look at conflict as a bad thing when if you're going to be married, you got to do conflict. And a lot of people unfortunately don't. I call it job security as a therapist because they're just too afraid to do it. So I have to do it with them. And uh, hopefully, you know, good things result from that. But the bottom line is we have to pare down what contributes to depression and anxiety and understand how they play with each other 
and what the psychology, the thought process is that gets people to the point where they're depressed and where they're anxious. Depression is hopelessness. Depression is unmet expectations. And if you can alleviate your hopelessness by becoming faith-based, I have faith. I have faith that this is going to happen. I have hope this is going to happen. I'm not going to hang my hat on it, but I, I, I do pray that it does happen, and I continue to put a lot of positive thought into the idea of something good happening. And so these aspects of our human nature can play against us and create and manifest disorders that just tear us apart as people. And so, you know, looking at all these things, we all have to take some responsibility for our own life. Now, I didn't break down what depression is, but I'm going to break it down. And it's basically either a significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain. It's insomnia or hyperinsomnia nearly every day. There's a lot of uh, physical agitation or retardation of your physical aspects. There's usually a lot of fatigue or loss of energy about every day. Uh, worthlessness, excessive guilt and shame. And then, and then there's this impaired ability to think or to concentrate. And then people become very indecisive and consultative. They depend on everybody else to make a decision even when they go to the bathroom. I mean, it's just crazy. They just can't seem to make up their mind at all. And then they have a lot of thoughts of death, reoccurrent suicidal ideation without a plan, or they even make an attempt at suicide or, or have the plan. But, you know, th this type of disorder really causes a lot of distress, and that's what it looks like. But the thoughts, once again, is unmet expectations. And knocking those things out is going to help your life enormously. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk more about the triggers of, uh, you know, that lead people to be anxious and to eat and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And also some, uh, the lack of health alternatives. We're going to look at some of the medical aspect. But then we're going to look at this other interesting person called a high-functioning uh, anxiety and depression. All right, come back. <laughs> Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Dr. Gary Bell is available for speaking engagements as well as teaching at your seminar or workshop and life coaching via telephone Skype or in person in the Seattle area. Dr. Bell brings his no-nonsense, straight-from-the-hip discussions each week on the show, but it doesn't stop there. Learn about motivation and psychology, one-couple marriage repair, a two-day workshop in Seattle, and more. Visit drgbmft.com today or call Dr. Gary Bell at 951-818-7856. That's drgbmft.com or 951-818-7856. Do you wish you could avoid having difficult conversations with your kids about sex, relationships, and how to stay safe? Do you struggle with what and how much to say? You're not alone. Tune into Holistic Sex Ed Radio with host Robin LaCrosse for a fresh new perspective on sex education that goes beyond the birds and the bees. We gather together every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel for conversations designed to improve your relationships, expand your knowledge, and give you the tools to help your kids make the most out of their lives. 
Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it will take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now, back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. All right, we're talking about depression and anxiety and uh, the, how they're basically two faces of the same coin. And it's really interesting to understand what triggers people to seek comfort, um, which is what people that are depressed and people that are anxious do. And often that comfort manifests itself in eating. You know, let's look at what people do with eating. People who are bored usually, and even who aren't emotional eaters, will occasionally turn to food when they can't think of anything else to do with themselves. If you regularly feed your your emotions, boredom becomes a big problem. And the obvious solution is to find something else that lasts longer and is ultimately more satisfying than eating. You know, it may be just a matter of experimenting until you find things you enjoy doing in life, then pushing yourself to continue doing them. You may first have to be careful to examine your boredom and figure out what's stopping you from trying new and different things. And so people that are anxious and depressed will overeat out of boredom. Some people will overeat and and seek comfort in bad ways like drinking or drugs um, because they're angry. You know, they they they'll literally eat their anger in order to cope with those feelings rather than deal head on with hurtful or frustrating situations in the moment foods an easy distraction from painful emotions but it's a temporary solution so your anger is bound to return and when it does it's likely to be accompanied by even more negative emotions and some of those can be like guilt or shame or you know and, and that comes from your overeating or over comforting yourself by, by, by going to a substance of some sort and developing a sense of a habit. You know, it's better to deal directly with, you, with your anger by speaking calmly and directly to the source of your anger if possible. But if you can't speak about your anger, at least write it down in a journal, get it out of your head into a, 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 you know, a piece of paper. You might also try to, to release the anger in a physical way like exercise. You know, consider, consider boxing or something like that. I mean, any of that could be helpful for you. You know, karate, uh, gym, something. Get it out there. But, you know, face it. Go to a therapist. Also, another trigger is stress. You know, and, and it's, once again, stress is very close to what's called anxiety. You know, um, you know how stressful you find a situation depends on how you view it and how you respond to it. So, we... You know, we choose how we react to life. We are in charge of our own emotions. We are in charge of how we choose to react. 
you you may not control all the outcomes, but what you can control is how you react to the outcomes, you know, and then that's where you begin to make change in how you manifest depression and anxiety and how much you let them play on your life. You know, you may have to give up on an impossible situation, but that doesn't mean giving up on yourself. And so, you know, have something in place that's not food related or not a, a bad comfort like substance abuse. You know, go to something like yoga or meditation. You know, that might help you cope with stressful situations while you deal with them. But make sure you go to somebody that can teach you to do something like that in a way that you feel comfortable. And that's important that you're not joining a group of yoga people to be a yoga person, but you're trying to be more mindful of your stress and anxiety and depression so that you can take more control of your emotional climate and allow your brain and your life to be more thought-based. Now, let's simply talk about one thing. Emotions are meant to fuel your thoughts. And that means you take emotions and you attach them to something you know is productive and you assign a feeling to it and you allow that feeling to drive that thought to completion. A lot of people who never complete anything, who are, are procrastinators, who start lots of projects and never stop them, are depressed and they're anxious because they don't complete. And the reason they don't complete is because they're doing what they think they're supposed to be doing rather than something that is purposeful that's going to help them or help other people. So they're not excited about the outcome. And that's the sad part. They're not, they're too impatient and, and they're expecting something that is greater than what they have in the moment. And they don't like all the necessary hard work it's going to take to get to the outcome. But here's what the funny thing is about life. Anything hard makes your life easier. If you complete more hard, you're going to have a much more full life. And so if you want a full life, if you want to experience things that you're proud of and not dine on mediocrity, then what you're going to find is you complete and complete and complete and now you become wise. And when you're older, people will seek you for the knowledge that you have. Here's another trigger, fear. You know, there's a, a, a lot of ways fear can lead to unhealthy uh, habits like overeating or drugs. And, and maybe it's time to face your fears. Before you can face your fears, you need to figure out exactly what you're afraid of. And are you afraid of gaining weight um, so you cycle uh, between starving and then overeating? Or are you afraid of change? Are you afraid of success or a failure of the hard work it takes to overcome fears because it may not pay off? You know, but trying to face fears on your own can be difficult because fear is so paralyzing. And, you know, it may be time that you ask for help or reach out to someone that doesn't live in fear, that lives in faith. And faith is a beautiful thing because that's what life is all about. Living in faith allows us to be in this moment, nowhere else. With the person that we're with, in the situation that we're in, and all of our energy is in that place and nowhere else. And that's all you owe this life. That is the meaning of life because you're creating memories on an ongoing basis when you're fully available in the moment that you're in. Another trigger is loneliness. You know, if your feelings of loneliness are, are uh, due to, like right now, we're all locked in our houses, 
Um, but if it's something like moving to a new area where we don't know people or starting a new job where we don't know anyone, you know, the big deal is involved is the social activities and your ability to reach out to new people. But if you feel more uh, profound type of ongoing loneliness, even in the company of friends or family, you may be uh, a, a bit more complicated into this loneliness. You may avoid the very activities that could help and instead turn to food for comfort. And in that case, recognize that the temporary relief you get from eating is simply delaying your efforts to find more permanent positive solution. And that goes once again for drugs and alcohol. You know, sadness is an appropriate emotion when it comes to, you know, traumatic experiences, loss, and, and time heals. But, but while you're waiting, food can be a comfort and a distraction from depressed feelings. But if you eat because you're unhappy, you're likely to end up more unhappy because you overate. And, and you know, uh, exercise is a really good coping skill, but not only because it keeps you physically healthy through hard times, but it also raises the level of feel-good chemicals, dopamine and endorphins in your brain, so you naturally feel better. The other ingredient that triggers people to do things like drugs, alcohol, you know, uh, overeating, you know, is poor self-esteem. You know, a person with self-esteem knows how to say no to things that hurt you. People that have poor self-esteem don't have the ability to say no to things that hurt their life. And so it may be easy for you to fall into a trap of a lot of negative self-talk or putting yourself down every mistake you make, real or imagined, or blaming yourself for everything that goes wrong in your life. But these self-defeating thoughts lead to self-defeating behaviors, and they do nothing more than perpetuate negative feelings that can that can bring on uh, drinking binges, eating binges, drug binges, often really unhealthy coping solutions. Rather than focus the things on your feeling bad about, look back over your daily and your weekly life and concentrate on the things that went right. And usually about 95% of those things went all right. If you can look at your life like that, you know, happiness is another trigger of people that drink or or take drugs or eat too much food. So they deal with emotion. So they emotionally overeat because they're happy because positive events spark an onslaught of overwhelming emotions that lead to a binge. And so we learn from childhood that a good meal is a normal part of any celebration. So it becomes difficult to separate food from your feelings. So when food as a reward contributes to chronic overeating, it's, it's time to find other ways to celebrate. You know, instead of making a reservation, plan a, a food party at home, plan a trip to a day spa or, you know, uh, or a painting party or be creative, do something, do something. <laughs> All right. You know, there, from the medical uh, uh, perspective, hopefully we're going to see our medical community migrate to a combined type of medication where we deal more directly with depression and anxiety. But I have to talk about this other high-functioning depression and anxiety. You know, people living with high-functioning anxiety and depression usually – they don't fit the stereotype of either disorder. In fact, they, they often appear like overachievers. And, and they can, uh, you know, they can be an energizer that drives the person towards achieving their goals. 
But, you know, in private, the symptoms of depression tend to emerge and the feelings of self-doubt and self-criticism and fatigue, helplessness, guilt, moodiness and desire to avoid interaction with others becomes more intense because of the, the stereotypical image of depression or anxiety doesn't match up with what people living with high functioning anxiety and depression actually look like. And, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to spot it even for sufferers to recognize it in themselves. But the symptoms, this this high-functioning anxiety and depression is it, are the same as for a non-functioning anxiety, non-high-functioning anxiety and depression, that the main difference is the ability to suppress or diminish the appearance of the disruptions. So that means the ego kind of paints over those signs so people don't see them, and they look at them as really high-functioning people. But these people are often described as type A personalities, overachievers. They they excel at work, appear to be a super mom or a super dad. They they think everybody thinks they have it all, all under control, and, and so a lot of uh, other people sometimes notice high functioning anxiety depression. But you know it's not always uh, uh, good behaviors. As sometimes people are anal retentive. Um, or they have these quirks or bad habits, and those are signs and symptoms that that person that you think is is so good has high-functioning depression and anxiety. Uh, But it's in minor details. You know, uh, some other signs of it is uh, self-criticism, excessive worry, guilt over the past or future decisions. There's this often this inability to slow down or to feel real joy um, you know, the symptoms of high-functioning uh, people of, of anxiety and depression um, only get worse over time if nobody treats them. But many times people just put it aside because all they can see is what that person will allow them to see. But about a third of the people with anxiety and, and depression actually seek it. But that number tends to be even lower for the people that have high-functioning anxiety and depression. You know, although they're suffering, they might not realize there's a problem. And so if it's left untreated, their life can diminish to the point where they're they're surviving rather than thriving. And, and a potential complication is that uh, they, they can lead to other medical and mental health issues when, when it's left untreated. And, and so, you know, evidence points to certain body systems function that, that present disorders. Uh, you know, especially the heart, especially the lungs, especially diabetes, stroke, cardiovascular disease. All these things can can go into a person's life that's high functioning. And um, but it can be treated because people living with high functioning anxiety and depression may appear fine, but they are far from being emotionally and mentally healthy as they could be. So if they would seek treatment, it's important to improve their emotional and mental health to its best potential. And so looking for that is a very important thing to understand that I may be highly functional, but parts of my life are a train wreck. And and you got to look at your life like that and and know that you've got to seek help. You can't just keep trying to do it all yourself. All right, that's our show. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, you can do that on my webpage, voiceamerica.com, the Empowerment Channel, Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Now remember, during these times, remember that all food must go to a Labrador retriever for testing. Also, being stuck at home with your kids can feel like 
hostage negotiating with a band of drunken bipolar pirates. And also remember, desserts, spelled backwards, is stressed. Thanks for listening, everybody. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 